Good evening. My name is Doug Isaacson, and I am an alcoholic. Hi, Doug! Thanks to a God of my understanding and a lot of folks like you in rooms like this, I haven't found it necessary to have a drink since December 18, 1984. I don't say that because I think I'm uh, special for my length of sobriety. I say that if, if there's a newcomer out here, that it is possible to maintain sobriety for an extended length of time. And if I can do it, anybody can do it. Uh, one thing before I start here, I'd like to pay a, a compliment to the NPG group. I don't get here as often as I like, but I do get here every now and then. And whenever I come in these doors, I think of one thing. It says in here, if you want what we have and are willing to go to any length. Well, every time I come in here, I realize I want what you have. This is a good group. What you have, I want, and I hope as long as I'm alive, I never quit wanting it. So I salute you. you. This is an excellent meeting. And back to the subject of length of sobriety. If you've been around here a while, you realize that length of sobriety doesn't necessarily have anything to do with quality of sobriety. Because <laughs> I've seen some guys that are 25 years sober and crazier than hell, you know. <laughs> sometimes my wife thinks I'm one of them. But I've also seen a lot of guys like I see sitting around here that got five, six, ten years of sobriety. Guys like Chad, got Kelvin, Matt, Mike, Kevin. It just goes on and on. You know, and the quality of the sobriety present in this room is second to none. So I compliment you again on the quality of the things that go around here. My story is a, is a fairly average and simple one. I like to think that I'm this grandiose great drunk and I had all these experiences that nobody else had. But, but when I come here and I tell about all the fall down drunk log stuff I did, I always find somebody that done something better. <laughs> and I'm a little sensitive. That hurts my feelings sometimes. <laughs> but I grew up in central Minnesota on a farm. And, and I grew up in a good family. You know, I never saw my parents drunk. I never saw my brothers drunk. I never saw my uncles, cousins, or any relatives drunk. I was never beat. I was never abused. I grew up in a perfectly warm, loving home. So why did I become an alcoholic? Well, I believe, like, like it says in here, that it's a physical allergy coupled with a mental obsession. And I'll just tell you how that started to unravel in my life. Uh, I first experimented with alcohol when I was in high school. I tried drinking beer. And, you know, just my natural reaction whenever I tried to take a swallow of beer was the old gag reflex. I just could not swallow beer. And I thought, boy, you know, I watched all my friends drinking beer and having a good time, and I felt kind of left out. Well, then I ran into this thing called Kelvert whiskey and Coca-Cola, <laughs> and uh, that solved all my problems, you know. I found if you mis mixed one-quarter Coke with three-quarters Kelvert, it didn't take you very long, you know. And I'll never forget my first drunk. And I think that's true of any alcoholic. You always remember your first drunk because something changed. All of a sudden, I had an answer to a problem I didn't know I had, you know, and I, I didn't fit in. And I really didn't know it. I was just uncomfortable. And, and when I had that first drink, everything changed. All of a sudden, I became tall, handsome, athletic, and charming, you know. And I wasn't, but I thought I was. <laughs> you know. 
uh, I never got into trouble drinking in high school. One thing happened in my when I uh, was uh, 17 years old that had an effect on me, and, and it was part of that mental obsession before the alcohol got here, is my father passed away. And uh, that was tremendously painful. And I remember I didn't cry at his funeral. And, uh, you know, I think that's the first time where I learned how to stuff my feelings. When something hurts you, just don't deal with it. You know, and that was going to come to play later on as I grew into being an alcoholic. I didn't know that, but uh, I'd set the groundwork for stuffing your emotions and not dealing with the crap going on in your life. But anyhow, uh, after uh, I got out of high school, in fact, I graduated from high school. I bought a 59 Chevy. I got a job in Minneapolis and moved there all in three days' time. <laughs> I was one of those that you couldn't keep me down on the farm. You know, I got to the big city and the bright lights, and I discovered all kinds of fun pleasures and things to do. And after a summer of that, I, I finally wound up, uh, uh, I went to the cities to work and save money, and I left there broker than I came down there, <laughs> because I had a pretty good time, you know. <laughs> I eventually wound up in good old Morehead, Minnesota, and, and uh, uh, started to go to school up here at the university, and, and when I was a freshman, I was... I had that old feeling where I didn't fit in again, and, and uh, they were pledging fraternities, and, and so I went along on one of those deals and decided to join a fraternity, and, and one of the first things they do is they take you out and get you drunk, you know, and, and we had a party. We rented the Knights of Columbus Hall. We hired a band and had a big party, and I remember I drank so much that I, I pretty much got in a blackout, and they took me down and put me in a car in the parking lot. Well, about a half hour later, I come to, and I'm wondering, I hear the band up there, and I'm, you know, all of a sudden I'm missing the party, and I, I couldn't remember where I was, and I saw this stairway, and it was the fire escaping back. So I come struggling up this back stairway, and there's a door, and I can hear the band on the other side playing away, and the door's locked, and, and I did what any drunk would do. I kicked the damn door down. Well, I didn't know the door came right out on the stage where the band was. So here comes this door, comes flying out where the band is, and they're falling over, and amplifiers are falling down, and it cuts the power, and all of a sudden, you know, the guitar players, you see them playing, but you hear no sound, you know. <laughs> and, of course, the crowd turned on me, and, and uh, they weren't too happy. And, actually, the crowd got pretty unhappy and trashed the place. So the next morning when I was sitting there with the dry heaves, I got a call from the president of the fraternity, and I had to go to start making my first amends. But anyhow, that's the kind of drinking I'd get into. I'd, when I started drinking, uh, whenever I had that first drink, I didn't know what was going to happen. You know, Sometimes I'd have a few drinks and catch a good buzz, and I'd have a good time, and uh, no big deal. But a lot of times when I drank... I would drink till there was a blackout or a consequence. You know, and that's, I think, that physical allergy to alcohol kicking in right there and the mental obsession. I started to drink like an alcoholic, but I didn't drink very often. And I could quit for three or four months and not even think about it. It wasn't on my radar screen. It wasn't a big deal in my life. I wound up, uh, the gentleman who spoke earlier alluded to a little bit of impulsive decisions with women. <laughs> and... I had a little impulsive decision that wound up with me getting married, too, before I should have. And uh, a couple of years into that, I graduated from college. I, my son was born, and I was working myself at a, pretty hard at a job trying to do the right things. You know, and from the outside, it looked like my life was pretty good. But uh, in the middle of that, uh, I was an alcoholic, 
And I drink alcoholically once in a great while, but it didn't affect my marriage. It didn't affect my job. But I was waiting. I didn't know it, but I was waiting for this precipitating event that would change my behavior and get me to cross a threshold. And it came in the form, after five years of marriage, my wife decided that I was not the most exciting drunk in the universe and that she probably wanted a divorce. And I I took that pretty hard. And although I had pretty good skills at stuffing my feelings, I wasn't able to stuff the pain from that. And I moved out of the house, and I moved in with a coworker, and I was sitting there in a puddle, just a mess. And he looks at me, and he says, I got your solution. And he drug me up to the 410 lounge. I had six double shots of tequila and ten beers. And, you know, the pain went away. <laughs> I didn't feel anything. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but I learned something right then and there. And that's where I crossed, crossed the threshold of what I consider normal drinking. Whenever I hurt, then I drank to to kill the pain, and I hurt just about all the time, so I tried to drink as much as I could, and one drink was never enough. I always drank till I pretty much blacked out or got into all kinds of trouble. Uh, You know, that's what I call the start of my industrial strength drinking career. From then on, I had about nine years of really going at it, and, uh, and I could, you know... I never knew when I went to the bars, and, and that, I always resent some of you guys that just sit at home with a bottle of whiskey and get drunk and pass out, you know. I never did that. I always drank out in public. I always made sure if I was going to make an ass of myself, I had at least a hundred people looking at me. <laughs> and then half of them would call you the next morning, you know. So that would create a lot of shame, so with all that shame, I'd have to go drink again to cover that up. You know, that's the kind of things I got into. And I, I'd, I'd drink and get into blackouts and, and drive around town. I remember once I was over to Perkins with my friend Daryl. We, uh, we were having breakfast after the bars closed, and I ordered steak and eggs. And, and uh, all of a sudden, I just passed out and went face down in my eggs, you know. And Daryl, he pulls up my head, and I got egg yolks. He goes, go clean yourself up. So I lurch over into the bathroom, and I'm cleaning myself up. Well, then I start to come through. The water, I start to come to. And I don't remember that Daryl's there, or I was out there. I looked in the parking lot. There's my car, so I got in and drove away. (laughs) Poor Daryl had to pay for my steak and take a cab home. So I come up the frontage road, and I get on Main Avenue, and I'm heading into town, going back to my apartment, and I notice I'm driving by the what Kroll's all used to be the highway host. So I was kind of hungry. I pulled in and had steak and eggs. <laughs> you know, that's a rather innocuous example of the things I did when I was drinking, but a lot of them are a lot uglier and a lot worse than that. Uh, after uh, a couple of years of divorce, I got custody of my son, and uh, became a single dad, and I thought that would straighten me out. And it did for a couple of years. I pretty much kept the load on it, but by that time, it was bigger than me. The drinking was out of control, and eventually, I started finding ways that I could drink and be a dad at the same time. You know, and consequently, he endured a lot of things no kid should ever have to endure. Uh, you know, he'd uh, wake up in the middle of the night, home alone. Uh, 11 years old, there's a police officer at the door, and he's trying to explain to the officer how it'll be okay because Dad does this quite a bit. Things like that I don't feel very proud of to this day. And it had a marked effect on his life, and uh, needless to say, he uh, got into our fraternity a lot earlier than I did. Uh, you know, so there was a lot of things like that going on. And the other thing, when you drive around town in a blackout, 
Eventually, you attract the attention of the local law enforcement. You know, they, when you're, they're coming down the road and you swerve into their lane and just about run them off the road, they get a little excited, you know. Or like the first time I got my DUI was at a company Christmas party, and it, I worked for a manufacturing company. I was out in the parking lot. We were going to go down to the, some bar after the party, and it was the middle of a driving blizzard, and I, I slid and hit a semi-truck, and it, it hit the roof of my car and just peeled it off just like a can opener. So there I sat looking out in the open air, you know. And rather than just park the car and do something, I decided to drive that up to the bar. So here I am in a driving blizzard, driving down Main Avenue with the car pe roof peeled back, you know. Well, the cop that saw that didn't see any humor in that. And <laughs> Once again, the county bars, and I got familiar. I got to be pretty familiar with that. Uh, truth of the matter is I had like five DUIs or, or physical controls in nine years' time. I spaced them almost every two years. I was pretty precise about that. And each time, I, you know, in the early days before Mothers Against Drunk Drivers and there was really a lot of a public uh, scorn on this, you could do a lot of things and, and they wouldn't consequence you too much. So they'd send you to some outpatient treatment programs. And I always tried one of these, I'm going to control my drinking afterwards, and I'd come up with a new scheme. You know, instead of drinking beer, I'd drink just gin on the rocks, or I'd do something and I'd stay sober for three weeks or six weeks, or once I stayed sober for six months. And every time I, after I had one of these DUIs and I stayed sober for that long, I thought I got a handle on it. So then, oh, I got that handle, I'd just let go. And of course, we'd go right back to where we were and worse. It never got better. It always got worse. And, uh, you know, eventually I came to that point where I was bankrupt, and I'm talking about being bankrupt financially, physically, morally, spiritually, and emotionally. And that's not a good place to be. It feels like there's a hole in your guts this wide, and the cold wind is blowing through it all, all time, you know. And I didn't know where else to go. But I'd been arrested in West Fargo right out by the Dairy Queen with my foot on the... Uh, on the brake and the car and drive, and, and when the arresting officer picked me up, I remember reading the arrest report, he'd ask for my driver's license and I'd hand him a 20 and tell him to keep the change. I thought he was the waitress at the Monte Carlo. I did that to him four times. You know, that was my last DUI, and I think I only blew a 3-4 on that one. I wasn't too drunk. So when you don't blow that hard, it's natural to get a lawyer and try and fight it, right? You know? So I, uh, well, I had to do something because we were going to change it to a Class C felony and send me out to Mandan for a while. And unbeknownst to me, I, I got a lawyer who was in the program. I didn't know that. You know? So he sat down and looked at my case, and, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, he said to me, you've got a problem with alcohol. And that question snuck up on me. I wasn't prepared for it. And I said, yeah, I do. And that's the first time I ever admitted it, because in all my outpatient treatments, I fought a tooth and nail, you know. I never admitted I had a problem with alcohol. And that's the first time, you know. And it kind of ambushed me, and I, I didn't know what to say. And he suggested I go to a meeting, and I, uh, uh, I didn't want to do that. But he said it might look good, better for me in court, so I thought, oh, okay, you know. <laughs> and I lived in West Fargo, and uh, so I picked a meeting in South Fargo, because I didn't think anybody would know me there. And I remember walking into that meeting, and uh, it was about 30 people in the basement of the church. 
and I was just ticked off because I had to be there. So I went and stood in the corner and gave him that best barroom, don't screw with me or I'm going to hit you look, you know. <laughs> you know, and they all ignored me except one little old guy came running over and he said, you must be new here. I didn't know how he knew that, you know. <laughs> Everybody else was having a good time. Anyhow, that was the finest piece of 12-step work I've ever experienced because that little old guy told me what was going to go on at that meeting. He told me to come and sit by him. He gave me a cup of coffee. He said, I don't have to say anything if I don't want to. And uh, he got me through that first meeting. I don't remember anything that was said at that first meeting, nothing that was said, because I was still in a daze. But I do remember this. I do remember that they all talked about drinking like I did, and they were all a hell of a lot happier than I was. You know, and that was enough to get me to come back to another meeting. So uh, I decided to uh, come back. But, you know, I have this other problem other than alcohol, and, and some of you alcoholics might recognize it, and I don't know if it's in the psychology books, but at the Saturday morning group we call it chronic oppositional disorder. That means we're chronically opposed to all forms of authority. <laughs> we don't like to be told what to do. And I think that's pretty common with alcoholics. So I get to going to these meetings, and I, you know, I was investing at least one meeting a week. I wouldn't want to jump into anything, you know. And, and these old guys, they'd come up with all these sayings, you know. And I went up to the one guy and said, Jesus, how long do I have to go to these meetings? And he looked at me. Well, you have to go to them until you want to, and then it won't be a problem, will it? You know, I hated those smart-ass <laughs> answers. You know, and, uh, and they told you all kinds of things, like don't get into a relationship until you've been sober a year. That was Tuesday night. I drove right down to Cactus Jackson, took up with some chick for at least nine months to prove them wrong. <laughs> but all that did, it just made me crazier. You know, I just got crazier because I was, I was, uh, and by the way, I wasn't going to quit my friends or my lifestyle or any of that stuff just because I couldn't drink. So I went to the bar five nights a week and drank Coke and smoked cigarettes and watched all my friends get wasted. And, and by 11 o'clock, I'd be really angry because I couldn't, couldn't drink with them. It just, you know, and, and uh, this went on for a long time because I was going to hold on to my old life. And, and finally, the guy that had got, who later came to be my sponsor, I was having dinner with him on Monday after one of these weekends of being in the bar drinking Coke, and, and I was just fit to be tied. And he said to me, are you tired of having so much fun on weekends? You know, and the light clicked on. I wasn't having any fun on weekends. And he made a quiet suggestion. He says, why don't you try hanging out with the people in Alcoholics Anonymous? Oh, that's a novel thought. <clears throat> so I went out for coffee with my first group. <sighs> Didn't do that again for a couple of weeks. That was kind of scary. They hugged each other and crap like that. <laughs> this, this nurse, his name, name was Maggie. She was a tough old girl. She was a nurse at the old uh, Prairie Psych Ward. And, and she came up and gave me a hug, and she laughs about it to this day. She said it was just like hugging a telephone post, because as soon as I saw her, she was going to hug me, I went... <gasps> You know, <clears throat> I wasn't dealing with much on a feeling level. But luckily, there were people in that group that saw what was going on with me, and uh, this, uh, one of them came up and says, you aren't fit to carry the message of the drunk, but you sure as hell are fit to carry the drunk to the message, and you got a car. So what he did is he set me on a schedule to go to the treatment centers and start bringing alcoholics to meetings. 
you know, and I didn't know what I was doing except that this jerk told me to do it, and I figured I better do it because I don't want to kick him, me to kick him out of the meeting, get kicked out of the meeting till we go to court, you know. <laughs> and uh, you know, slowly but surely, I got I got drawn into what goes on at these meetings, you know. And, and uh, uh, after a good amount of resistance, I actually took the suggestion that maybe you should have a sponsor. And this guy that used to be a bartender in one of the bars I went to, he had taken a stopping by me, my work, about twice a week and having coffee with me, and we'd talk. And, and finally, uh, I asked him if he'd be my temporary sponsor because I didn't want to commit to anything. And we, we had lunch every Monday noon for 12 years. You know, and that man changed my life. And I can hardly talk about it without getting emotional. And when I get emotional, I always say it's a sign of, that God has a sense of humor. Because I remember the first AA speaker I heard was Dave B. from Fargo here. And he'd, and he'd get all emotional sometimes, and he'd shed a tear. And I remember listening, leaning over to the guy next to me, and I said, you know, this Dave's pretty good, but I wish he'd quit that crying shit, you know. <laughs> God remember that. I can't talk about anything close to my heart anymore without shedding a tear, you know. But that's also a far cry from where I was when I couldn't cry at my own father's funeral. You know, somehow in there, part of the healing is I learned that I have feelings and I have to deal with them, and I learned how to deal with them, and now I'm grateful that I can, I can cry whenever something happens. Before I was in that real men don't do stuff like that. But now I realize I'm a lot stronger because I can cry. Before I was just fragile like glass, you know. I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, my recovery. You know, uh, my recovery isn't any different than what you practice here or anything else. And, I, and through, through acts of God, what I recognize is acts of God, that, that lawyers who got me to admit I was an alcoholic and that little old guy that got me to, to, to feel comfortable at the first meeting and that old nurse that got me to go take drunks to the to the meetings and the and the guy who became my sponsor you know it, it all just kind of crept in on me and I learned some things you know and, and, the, and the basics are the same you know we had Saturday morning we call this book down here the operator's manual you know it's like we're a defective piece of equipment and you got to learn anything you need to know about life you can learn in this book if you get a little help interpreting it from sponsors and, and your AA brothers you know, and the other thing that I was lucky enough, I was able to form a good close group of friends. We hung out and did stuff together. We lived on at that campground at Otter Tail. We took trips. We started fishing trips. We started the Saturday morning meeting. We did a lot of things, you know, and I'm happy to say I'm, I'm still friends with those guys. And, and alcoholics are extremely intelligent, talented people. And, you know, you won't be sorry for the people you meet here. One of my friends from that group now lives in Geneva, Switzerland. He works for the United Nations. He's got a really interesting, exciting job. Another one of my friends just bought a sailboat. He's sailing down the East Coast right now, getting ready to sail to England by himself, you know. Alcoholics do neat things. They're neat people, you know. And uh, there's just hundreds of people like that that I've been allowed to be part of their life. And what a blessing. You know, that somewhere in this book, uh, a part that's real important to me is, is the promises, the promises of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I used to read them every day, and they've came true in my life. You know, back when I was drinking after I was divorced, I wasn't, you know, three dates was a long-term relationship with me. 
And most of my relationships didn't have anything to do with dates. It's between had something to do with dragging each other home from the bar after it closed, you know. And and one of the things that I the promises came true is is I was able to meet a woman, and uh, we've been married for 14 years. You know, and, uh, she's a better woman than I deserve. I say that because she's not here. I don't always say that in front of her, but she is a better woman than I deserve. And, and I learned, through you people, I learned how to be in a relationship. I learned what it was like to find a soulmate. You know, we're both in our 50s, and we're both getting older, but there isn't another woman alive that I have any interest in romantically other than that woman I'm married to. And thank God, that's the way it's supposed to be. That's one of the promises coming true. And that son of mine that grew up, you know, with me and a drinker, one of the things I like to do when I was drinking is I like to party with bikers because you always know where you stood with them, you know. They either liked you or they hit you, you know. (laughs) None of this behind-the-back crap, you know. So it wasn't unusual for 3 in the morning and all's well at my house, all of a sudden 30 Harleys pull up in the yard and we have a party whether I want to or not. You know, and I I went along with that. But my son saw a lot of that kind of stuff. And he had, you know, he had a lot of dysfunctional things happen to him. And he dropped out of high school, and he was using pretty heavy, you know. And uh, he's been sober 14 years. And the only reason he... I think he got sober. It's not because of any good things I did for him, but he saw the change in my life. And then his mother, incidentally, sobered up out in New York the same time I was sobering up here. You know, and that's the miracle of alcoholics working again. You know, and and uh, and I'm really proud of him. He's uh, he's now finishing his master's degree at North Dakota State University, and he's uh, he pulls four point grade averages, and he used to drop out and flunk out of high school. And I'm proud of him for that, but I'm more proud of him for those 14 years. Because without that, he wouldn't have anything else. And without my sobriety, I wouldn't have anything either. And, you know, once you get in recovery, you aren't going to live happily ever after in the land of good and plenty. Plenty of bad shit's going to happen to you, you know. (laughs) You know, stuff you deserve and stuff you don't deserve. You know, I remember after being sober for four years, and I survived running my own business as a drunk, I thought, boy, no, I'm sober, watch me. You know, and my ego got in the way, and I went out and went broke in two years. You know, you, you have these emotional highs and lows. And, and But AA teaches you to live with that, you know. And I've had some serious stuff. A couple of years ago, I started getting sicker and sicker, and I didn't know what was going on, and I just felt terrible, and doctors couldn't figure it out. And all of a sudden, I lost vision in one eye, and all of a sudden, I found out I'd been diagnosed with leukemia. And uh, I uh, I got so bad they had me in the hospital did a bunch of transfusions and and they said i was within hours or days of a fatal stroke or heart attack you know and i'm not saying that to get sympathy out of you but what i'm saying is is that i did, i did what i always did i told, talked to my sponsor i talked to my a buddies and uh uh you know with good news there's with bad news there's always good news a new drug came on the market about the time i got sick i take two pills a day and i'm in complete remission you know, and that's the grace of God. 
But the point I want to make, the point I want to make is, is that, uh, you know, I, I got the news on a Thursday night and I couldn't get into the cancer center till Monday. So that, you know, what does an alcoholic do when he gets bad news? He goes on the internet and does some half-ass research. And I researched the wrong thing, and I was, I was, take me out and shoot me, it's all over. <laughs> Which wasn't quite true. And while I was at the lowest point, I ran into Bob, Dr. Bob, who goes to the Friday night meeting, who's been battling cancer for 10 years. And he shared his experience, strength, and hope with me, and, and what a blessing. You know, and the other thing I can tell you for a fact, you know, we, we sometimes wonder about the spiritual part of this program and the power of it. But I know after that, being diagnosed with that, I know what it feels like to have an army of people praying for me. Pretty powerful, pretty powerful stuff. And I wouldn't have that if it wouldn't be for Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, so just about everything in my life that I have that's worth a damn right now, I wouldn't have if it wasn't for rooms like this and people like you. You know, that makes me pretty grateful. I mean, I could go on and on about how the promises come true in, in, in many different areas of my life. But I think right now I'd, I'd just like to close, and I'd like to thank you all for being what you are at this group here tonight. Thank you.